We want to read our scriptures this morning. Uh, we have three texts. The first one is from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. This takes place right after the Israelites cross the Red Sea. The Egyptians seek to follow them. They do follow them, but the Red Sea crashes back down on them, and they all perish. And then Moses and the people of Israel sing this song. Listen here to God's word. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. And the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword and my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Our gospel text is from Matthew, the 28th chapter, the first 15 verses. <clears throat> We're familiar with this. If you were here on Good Friday, or if you were at home and watched, I should say, <clears throat> or did something else, you know that uh, on Good Friday, Jesus' body was buried. There were women watching, making sure where he was, and they were waiting until after the Sabbath had passed by. And then they're going to come early on the first day of the week, the first day of the new week, and prepare his body for the way it should be done. And here's where, where we pick up. So listen here to God's word. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, 
Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. <clears throat> and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they, the soldiers, took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Amen. Then our primary text today is Revelation, the 15th chapter. It has eight verses. <clears throat> we'll read all eight verses. Again, listen here to God's word. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels we're finished. Amen. Caitlin Vanderbeek and her father, John Rittenhouse, are going to come back and uh, sing The Holy City. Last night as I lay sleeping, there came a dream so fair. I stood in old Jerusalem beside the temple there. I heard the children singing, and ever as they sang, 
I thought the voice of angels from heaven answer rang. I thought the voice of angels from heaven answer rang. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, lift up your gates and sing. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to your King. And then I thought my dream was changed, the streets no longer rang. Hushed were the glad hosannas, the little children sang. The sun grew dark with mystery, the morn was cold and chill. As the shadow of a cross arose upon a lonely hill, as the shadow of a cross arose upon that lonely hill, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, hark how the angels sing, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to your King. And once again the scene was changed, new earth there seemed to be. I saw the holy city beside the tideless sea. The light of God was on its streets, the gates were open wide, and all who would might enter, and no one was denied. No need of moon or stars by night, or sun to shine by day. It was the new Jerusalem that would not pass away. It was the new Jerusalem 
us away. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, sing for the night is your goodness, with your power, with your might. Thank you, Lord, for setting seasons aside like this to reflect and remember what you've done. Oh, Lord, we give thanks and praise to you. We ask you now to continue that regular, ongoing feeding of us by your word, by your spirit that we need. Sometimes there are great feasts. Sometimes they're some a little bit meager. Sometimes they're just plain old food that we need. So, Lord, we pray that you would minister to us, give us food for our souls, build us up this day in the preaching of your word. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the Lord of all. Amen. I've been rebuked. Yeah, I have. I was rebuked. For using words that you don't know about, words that you don't know what they mean. Last week I was rebuked for using hermeneutic. How many people here know what hermeneutic is? None of the people here know that. None of them are raising their hand. They are, some of them are. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, it's a four syllable tongue twister, hermeneutic. You want a five syllable tongue twister? Delicatessen. There. Is that common enough for you? <laughs> Let me tell you what hermeneutic means in case you don't know. Uh, it's going to be right up here on the screen. Hermeneutic is, is the rules for interpreting a text, and in our case, biblical texts. Now, Hermeneutics 101 tells us that we need to pay attention to the type of text we find, what kind of text we're reading. So for instance, today we read Matthew 28, 1 through 15. Now verse 6, it would the whole thing is this, but we'll use verse 6 as an example. Uh, the angel is speaking, and he says, he, the Lord Jesus, his body is not here, for he has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay, where he was lying. That's a straightforward text on two levels. On the one hand, there really was an angel speaking that to the people, to the women who were there. And on the second level, what the angel said really was true as well, on just a plain old historical fact basis. So on two levels, it's just a straightforward text. It's what reporting should be, right? Reporting ought to be this, just, just the facts. And that's what that is. Now, there are other kind of texts that are figurative, they use figurative language 
to convey truth. A lot of what we read in Exodus 15 contained figurative language. For instance, it says, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now you understand that's figurative language. It, it says they like lead, it's a simile there. Uh, you blew with your wind. Well, did God blow? Well, the wind came, but there, you have a picture in your mind of God blowing. Well, that's figurative language to say that God did all this. And it says, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Two verses later, look what it says. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Well, which was it? Did he blow with his mouth or did he stretch out his hand? It's both of them, right? Because it's a figure that's meant to tell us that God did this. And as a consequence, whether you say they were in the sea or they went into the land, in the earth, it meant that the, the Egyptians were destroyed. Right? You understand that? So you have texts like that. Figurative language used to convey truth. Now, we have other types of language. We have uh, <laughs> Revelation 15.2 that we read today. This is prophetic, apocalyptic language. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. Man, this thing has everything. You know, it has all kinds of stuff in it. And, uh, uh, but here's the point. It's meant to convey truth prophetically to be finalized in due time. Maybe new times. We'll see about that just a little bit. But it's in apocalyptic language, which is figurative, but, but a specific type of figurative language. And it's prophetic. It's saying, this is what's going to happen. Okay? Uh, so that's hermeneutics 101. Helps us with our text. Last week, I told us that we... I gave you a lesson, Hermeneutics 201. Remember that? Hermeneutics 201. And the first thing about Hermeneutics 201 is that every text we read always has a then and there application, written to real people at a real point in time. So, for instance, uh, the book of Revelation, we read this. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. The Apostle John received the orders from the Lord Jesus Christ to write down these things he saw. Don't make them up, John. It's not you. You write down what you see and then send it to the seven churches. And then the Lord Jesus lists the seven churches. So at a particular point in time to those particular churches, he wanted this to go. Right? So that's the then and there. If we leave out the then and there and say we, we don't care about that, you'll, you'll misunderstand the text. You can't, you can't hear it accurately. But we also said in Hermeneutics 201, every text has a then and there. We must pay attention to that. But it also has a here and now. So, for instance, uh, Revelation 1.3 says this. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. That means right where you are. Here and now. Because... The way the book ends, Revelation 22, 18 says this. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Everyone, in other words. No matter 
what time you live in historically, no matter where you live geographically, these things that have been written in this book have an application to you. So we said that was, you have to understand that, Hermeneutics 201, to know that there's a, a then and there, you have to be grounded in that, but it'll also always have a here and now. Now, here's the finale. I get excited thinking about it. Here is the basic interpretive rule for all the Bible. Here, no matter what the interpretation is, here's what it says. Boom, put it up there. What's it say? Victory in Jesus. Hallelujah. Right? That's the title of the sermon today. Victory in Jesus. Well, you take that down. Let's see how that works out in today's texts. We're going to get done way early. That'd be good for a change, huh? Our main text is Revelation 15, all of it, verses 1 through 8. And this text is a sandwich. What do you mean it's a sandwich, John? What I mean is this. It starts with plagues and the wrath of God, the full and final wrath of God, in verse 1. There it is. Then verses 2 through 4, you have a victory celebration, right? You can see that. That's there. And then verses 5 through 8, you go back and it's the plagues and the other stuff again. So you have this sandwich. You have victory celebration sandwiched in between plagues. And not just plagues, but final plagues. Now this is that, again, a principle we mentioned last week. It's the coin with the two sides principle. Uh, we see the same thing in our text from Matthew today uh, with the women at the tomb. Uh, verse 8 of Matthew 28 says this. You got it up there? Yeah. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Now wait. Fear and great joy? You think those things are, are, they don't quite mix. Well, yes, they do. They're either side of the same coin. They had fear. They were awestruck. They were, oh my goodness, they were diminishing their own sight. But they had great joy for what they'd heard. Now, the way that sandwich works in our text today, you have the seven plagues of wrath, the they're full of wrath, a finish of wrath. We'll wrap all things up, and we say, oh, no, oh, no, not more plagues, more wrath. And then you have, in the middle of that, a reminder. Just like we said yesterday, or yesterday last week, that the first part of Revelation 14 was a reminder in the midst of all these plagues of what the bottom line is. And they say, remember, the bottom line for you is this victory scene around the sea, at the sea, on the sea. Uh, you need to know that. Now, that's put in there so that you don't lose hope, so that you don't lose perspective, that you don't get overwhelmed with where you are and what's going on, what you see around you. Now, our text says, verse 1, with these plagues, the wrath of God is finished. It's going to be done. It's going to be over. Well, what is the then and there application of that text. It's for the rebellious folk 
who are now been pushed all the way back and are in Jerusalem. We've talked about this before in previous chapters all the way through. It's talking about the, the, the people who are gathered there. They've been uh, there for a while, and they've had warning after warning after warning. Jesus, throughout his ministry, warned, look out, don't reject, don't turn back, don't turn aside, don't do this. He told all kind of parables about this. Don't reject the cornerstone, lest it fall on you. You should fall on it instead. Big difference. Jesus taught all this throughout his ministry. And last Sunday, we saw that even with his triumphal entry, and all the stuff that's going on around him with acclamation, Jesus wept. One of only two places in the Bible, in the Gospels, I should say, where we see and hear of Jesus weeping. The other is at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus wept because he could see, he says, this, not one stone is going to be left upon another. He foresaw the destruction of Jerusalem. That actually happened then and there. He's trying to tell the people then and there, this is going to happen. And it did in their generation, 40 years later in AD 70. Despite all the warnings for years and years, now, and there was wrath, or when I say warnings, not just verbal warnings, there were things in time that happened to them, things that occurred to them. Despite all these warnings, now, what this text tells us, is the final full wrath of God is going to fall on them. Think of Exodus. Exodus 15 that we read. God over, people sometimes debate how long it was, but God kept warning and warning and warning Pharaoh. Let my people go. Let my people go. And brought plague after plague after plague. Could have been as long as three years, could have been as long as a year and a half, somewhere in through there is where, how long it was. And, uh, Finally, finally, it was a final plague. The wrath of God was filled up. And we read about it at the Red Sea, where God blew the wind and it caused the waves to crash over them and they sank like lead in the waters. Or he reached out his powerful right hand and the earth swallowed them up. It was final. Pharaoh had no more opportunities, period. You know, that's a pattern that we find throughout history. I was talking to someone this week. It may have been Justin Cole. It may have been someone else. I forget who it was. Uh, they're reading through the book of Judges. They're saying, oh, my goodness, it's amazing. Uh, the people of Israel get all in distress, and they'll cry out to God, and God will raise them and deliver for them. He'll deliver them, and then <clears throat> they'll go back and do the same thing. Warning, warning, warning. Whoop, boom, judgment again. And Judges is just filled. In fact, the whole Old Testament is full of that. If you read just the historical narrative of all the dealings of God with Israel, you think, why don't these people learn? Right? If you've not thought that when you've read through there, then you've not been reading, with comprehension anyway. You know, uh, why don't they learn? So this brings up a question. Well, I left my water down there. I'll survive. I'll survive. I'll survive. I got a lozenge here if I need to. <clears throat> is history cyclical? Does it go round and round? Does it repeat itself? Or is history linear? 
Does it, is it marching toward a goal? Is it making progress? People always ask that question. It's a big philosophical question. Today, you're going to get the answer. Hallelujah. Isn't that good to know? Here it is. <laughs> History is cyclical on a linear progressive mode. How's that? Yes, indeed. The same things happen again and again and again. You know, the, 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 we had some kids, some of our kids who went down to the teen mission and uh, they had it when they got, got, did bad stuff, they had to take another lap around Mount Sinai, right? You didn't learn yet? Vroom around Mount Sinai. <clears throat> Let's do it again. Round Mount Sinai. And then finally they learn and poop off they go. Or not, as the case may be. Uh, so it, history, God's working in history, is always cyclical. That is, there's a pattern to it. You can observe that. But it's always moving toward his goal. He's moving history forward to his goal, to what he has in mind. So we need to know that. Uh, so that's the then and there. Now, the here and now, for folk in any historical age, any geographic setting, is where are we in this cycle of warning, 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 boom, judgment. I would suggest if we're alive today and you're in the uh, Western civilization, if you're in the United States, you'd say, man, here's another big warning we're going through right now. Warning, 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 warning. Is this the final warning? And God doesn't mean just to scare us. He certainly means to do that, but it means to work into us repentance so we can turn back to him, change our ways, change how we think, change the basis of our lives. That's what the warnings are for, to do that, to bring that about. So no matter what period of time you're in, no matter what culture you're in, where are we in this cycle that God does with nations? Warn, 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 boom, judgment. We need to pay heed regardless of where we are. Now, all those warnings, those final, all those warnings that result in a final judgment on a people, a land, a nation, all of those point to the final judgment, okay? There will be the final judgment. When everyone who's ever lived every, could all stand up before the throne of God and render an account. Now, I'm going to have uh, guys on the board put up a quote from a fellow. His name is William Hendrickson. He wrote a commentary on on uh, Revelation, and he had, he had a. Now he and I don't agree on everything, by the way. I can't. I've not found a commentary yet that agrees with me on everything, or that I agree with it on everything. It shows how us human beings are. We're just disputatious, right? Yeah. But he 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 said something very very good. Here it says this: Throughout the history of the world, God's final wrath. He means his final wrath on a nation or on a people. Again and again reveals itself. Think of Tyre. Think of Babylon. Think of Assyria. Think of Nineveh. Think of Jerusalem. Again and again reveals itself. Now it strikes one, then another. What else? Is, what does he draw from that? Here's, here's the next quote from him. You got it up there? It is final, though not complete, until the judgment day. That's what we need to understand in, in the places where we are. 
God can have a final judgment on us before the final judgment day. And what I've, all, what I've said here with regard to, to nations and cultures and all that applies to people. Applies to people. We read on Good Friday evening about Herod. How Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. Remember this? And Herod's excited. He's glad. He's glad to see Jesus. Been wanting to hear from him for a long time. And Jesus says not a single word to Herod at all. Judgment day for Herod came when John the Baptist there would preach to him. He liked to hear John the Baptist, but he decided to cut his head off to keep his own oaths to people made at a party. And when he did that, that was the final wrath that fell. No more stuff from God at all. It's shut off. It's like we read here in, in chapter 15 where it's closed off. No one can enter. Herod could not enter. So we're talking about individually, talking about nations, cultures, eventually for the world. That'll be the case. Now, next week, <clears throat> we'll examine those four bowls of wrath more closely. We're still on time. Today, our focus finally is on the victory celebration. Verses two through four. Hallelujah. Uh, remember our hermeneutical rule about reading Revelation? Rule number one. I lost my place in my notes. Oh, we don't have a photograph. Show me a photograph. Boom. There it is. The White House. We've used this for like, this is like the fourth time we've used it, so you know what it is. That's, a, that's, that's it. That's the way it looks. Revelation is not a photograph. Rather, it is a representation like this. There. Look at that. Now, those of you who are new here, that's a representation of, of the spirit of the Confederacy that's the Louisiana Monument on the field of Gettysburg. And it's, you can't tell for sure, if you're real close, if it's a male or female. It turns out it's a male. But you can't tell when you're real close here. And it has all these things going on. That's a representation. And that's the way, that's the way the book of Revelation is for us as well. Okay, you take that down. People are tired of seeing that. It's like the fourth time we've shown that. Uh, so let's look at the uh, unity and coherence of Moses and the Lamb. Uh, here's the song they sing. What's it say? And they sang, come on, there we go. And they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, I want to tell you that my understanding of this is that it's a single song. It's a single song. Uh, now, Moses sang songs, Jesus sang hymns, but they all were a single song that exclaimed and gave voice to the great works of God. Uh, we need to know that. And I say that in light of some things that go on. Sometimes you hear about people who say, I'm a New Testament Christian. You can't be just a New Testament Christian. Can't do that. Because without the Old Testament, the New, the New Testament is not there. It doesn't have anything. We've got to be a, a biblical Christian. You have, there's a certain type of teaching called dispensationalism that says, well, God has a plan for Israel and God has a plan for the church, the Gentile people. Well, no, those are dear brothers in Christ, but they're mistaken. God has plan A. 
From the very beginning, we saw, we did this like four or five weeks ago, from the very beginning, his, his vision is global. The nations, right? It's what he wants to do. Uh, and he works it out as he will. Uh, or you take people who, who give a bad name to replacement theology. Well, those are dear brothers too, but they're mistaken. Replacement theology is not trying to replace, despite what they say, trying to replace uh, Israel with the church. It's about grafting in. <laughs> so all of the Old Testament is still there, and the Gentile church has been grafted onto that, and is the, the right and good continuation of that. And it says that this Paul, branches have been broken off, Jewish branches broken off, but they can be grafted back in again. But if the church is not founded on the testimony of the patriarchs and prophets, we don't have a church, not a biblical church. So it's the one song repeated with repeated references to the great and marvelous works of God. King of the nations, from the outset, the Bible is one whole. It's complete. Don't separate it out. So that's the, the song of Moses and the Lamb. What about the sea of glass? The sea of glass is absolutely calm. Now, you know, I've told you, I've been, I was in the Navy, went on board ship and sailed for a year and a half, and the sea is always restless. I can remember we were sailing from Vietnam down to, to Singapore, and, and it was in it was calm. We were up on the signal deck, the highest point you can be on the, on the ship. And uh, the moon was shining, and the sea was perfectly flat like a lake, and still we were going up and down. No waves, but it's just that up and down. If you went up and if you're trying to go up and down a, a ladder, the steps, you, you experience that. Not not rush, but it still it was always that. The sea is always restless. That's why the sea represents humanity in the Bible. Always restless, always restless, and oftentimes churned into wild, riotous, crashing waves. But here, in the victory song, it's a sea of glass. And there's, there's none of this up and down either. It's a sea of glass. They're standing on it. It's perfectly calm. All things are resolved. All things are taken care of. It's mixed with fire, though. You know, Matthew 28 and the victory of Jesus in the empty tomb comes after Matthew 27, right? Matthew 27 was great heartache, great disappointment, great suffering on the part of the Lord Jesus. He died. All their hopes were crushed. That's, you know, red stuff. That's stuff. It's mixed with that. Exodus 15 comes after Exodus 14. When they were caught, when I preached through Exodus, we said, I think the title of the sermon was, Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea. Now, the devil was Pharaoh. He was charging down, going to capture those Israelites who were escaping. And on the other, they were in a little cane place where they couldn't go anyplace else. And on one side was Pharaoh coming. On the other side was the Red Sea. Help! They were worried. And God brought them out. That's what we read about here. Uh, so Psalm 93 is always true. Listen to what Psalm 93 says. The floods have lifted up their pounding waves, 
but more than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Isn't that great? Hallelujah. Now, we're not, no, no one on this earth in this temporal time has reached the glassy sea. We're not there yet. We're still in, we're still in, <coughs> we're still in Matthew 27 to some degree. We're in 28 too, but I mean, we're, we're not, we're not in the final part there. So we'll always have this stuff going on. Our lives are always got a little bit upheaval in them, always a little bit of stuff going on, just the way it is. If you're looking for perfect peace, you only find it in the presence of the Lord, and we don't stay there, <laughs> if you would. Right? He has stuff for us to do. We have to go out. We experience things. i got to hurry. Getting late. Now, this unity of trial and triumph, which is what the glassy sea represents, trials for those who are the faithful of God, those who are led by him, those always lead to the triumph. A good passage of scripture that shows this most clearly is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now what it says is this, and it's talking about the children of Israel as they come out of Egypt, cross the Red Sea, and go toward the promised land. It says, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. I didn't make that up. It's in 1 Corinthians 10. The rock was Christ. So that's the sea of glass. We still have two more things to go through. Be quick. This is, in fact, a victory over all the forces, strategies, and wiles of the devil. I think I see in the sermon blurb somewhere, but if there's a victory, there has to be a defeat. Who's the victor? Who's the defeated? Well, Revelation 15.2 shows us exactly that. These were those who had been victorious. Hallelujah. Those who were victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name. Now, all those things represent everything in the devil's arsenal, as it were. And over all those things, these folk were victorious. We don't have time to go into an example of each of those, but trust me, that's, that's the case. Uh, we do have a good example, though, of how that's the case. The last part of Matthew 15, or Matthew 28 that we read, uh, verses 11 through 15, in there it says this, that these chief priests, the authorities, the Jewish authorities, and the soldiers who had been there, says they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and told them, you are to say, you know, make up a lie. And so the soldiers took the money and did as they had been instructed. There you have all the strategies of the devil. He killed the Lord Jesus, he thought, had him put to death. Peter will talk about this on the day of Pentecost. By the hands of godless men. 
did this. They resorted to subterfuge and lies, and they told an untruth, made people tell untruths, that they bribed them. They weren't honest. They tell this. And so the soldiers told the story that the disciples came at night, knocked them out or whatever, and stole them away, stole the body of Jesus away. Not true. Some may believe that, but that's a lie. The truth is what's told in the first eight verses. <clears throat> God came, shook the earth, burst the tomb open. The angel came and the Lord Jesus arose and went out. Alive, risen, never to die again. No matter what lies the devil may put. So victory always means defeat for one other side. The last thing I'd like to point to here is <clears throat> what we find here is music and singing. Music, singing is meant to give expression, to give voice to what God has done. Sometimes just speaking it out is not clear enough. You need to, you need to, to give some expression of it that's an expression of your soul, of your heart in some way. And singing and music have always been God's preferred means for human beings to give that praise to him. That's why we were so fulfilled, is a good word, excited to sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. Alle, alle, alleluia. We were glad. We're, did, you feel, did you feel that welling up from your soul? Saying yes. It's true. You do. I know. I, I see expressions on people's faces here. You do too. You give expression to what God has done in history, not make-believe stories. In history, what he's done in our souls, done in their souls, for us too. Music. If you don't like to sing, get converted How's that? Boy, that's a pretty condemning statement, isn't it? Well, get converted on how you think about singing. How's that? Does that make you feel better? You should love to sing. Even if you sing poorly, sing. We're commanded to do that. Now, whatever song you sing, here's the point of Easter. <coughs> here's the point of the day. Whatever song you sing, it will always say, Victory in Jesus. How's that? Amen.